Do you ever have those days when things just aren't right? I'm not talking about when things aren't going our way or having some trouble. I'm talking about those times when things aren't right in your soul. You're unsettled, you're on edge, you feel anxious and irritated and you just don't know why. You don't feel connected. You don't feel connected to God. You don't feel connected to other people. In fact, they typically just make it worse. You can't find rest in your own skin. The whole world around you seems to be in complete chaos. And the things that you do with your time and your efforts just seem meaningless. They don't give you any fulfillment. Maybe this experience comes and goes for you. It lasts for a day or two or maybe three, but then things go back to normal. But maybe for you, this is an everyday occurrence. It just doesn't end. But regardless of how we experience this, things aren't right. This is not the way life is supposed to be, and we know it. In the lives and minds of the Israelite people, there was one story that was most prominent, most important. It was a story that they told over and over through their festivals, in their synagogues, around their tables at home. It was a story that defined them as a people, particularly as the people of God. And that was, of course, the story of the Exodus. But the story of the Exodus does not begin with Moses. The story of the Exodus begins hundreds of years before that, when a famine came upon the land and the Israelites migrated from their homeland to Egypt, where they found abundance and food and were able to live. And they stayed there. And as they multiplied and grew and became a nation, became a people, the Egyptians looked around and immediately became worried. They worried that as the Israelites grew and became more powerful and numerous, they would find alliances with Egypt's enemies and together they would rise up and conquer Egypt. And so to keep that from happening, the Pharaohs devised a plan and they enslaved the Israelite people. And we're told for 400 years, the life of the Israelites was one of slavery. Every moment of every day, year after year, generation after generation, the Israelite people were told everything to do and when to do it, when to get up, when to rest, what to work, where to go, when to eat. Their lives were dictated by their masters. And so by the time that Moses comes around and God hears the cries of his people and decides to take action and lead them out of Egypt, the Israelite people know nothing of freedom. They know nothing of life for themselves. They know nothing of how to be a people even. And so having led his people out of Egypt, God calls his people to Mount Sinai, calls Moses to the top and hands him the law. Now this law was a set of rules and regulations. And as we thousands of years later look back on it, it is a list of things that they can and can't do. It's a list of what they can and can't eat, what they can and can't wear, how they ought to treat each other. And to us, it looks like a system of rules. And it certainly was that, but the purpose it served was to teach them again what it meant to be a people. It was to teach the Israelites who had been enslaved for centuries what it meant and what it looked like and how they could go about life together, how they can find in the wake of such atrocity, such oppression, such anxiety and fear, how they can find peace. God gives them in the law the roadmap, the rules and the guidelines by which they can live in order to find peace not only with him, but with one another. But as we know, the story of the Israelites is one in which that never actually happens. There are moments, of course, of national pride, for example, under David and Solomon, when they become a sovereign state. But those periods last for only a brief moment. 
The story of Israel is a story of being oppressed, being pushed in by foreign powers, fighting within, ultimately dividing as a nation, being conquered, being led into exile, being allowed to return to a land but never really free, being ruled by foreign powers in their own homeland. This is the story of Israel. And so as we look at the law and its purpose and this promise of peace, as we look at the words of the prophets, particularly Isaiah, who speaks of the Prince of Peace that is to come, we have to wonder, as they did, how will that happen? When will that happen? The rules and the regulations and the guidelines that God has given his people have not led to peace. It has led to frustration and failure and unfaithfulness. As the years ticked on and they approached what we now know as the first century, there are those who had given up hope long ago. They had resigned themselves to simply cooperating with whatever power was in place at the time so they could just get along and go along with their lives. There are others who tried very hard through various means to pave the way for the coming Messiah, thinking that if they just tried hard enough, if they were faithful enough, if they were pure enough, that certainly God would deliver them and the peace that they had been promised would be found. But year after year and century after century, nothing changed. Not really. But then on a calm, quiet, typical night, as most people were in their homes resting for the day to come, there were shepherds out in the field watching their sheep. And all of a sudden, an angel appears and tells them that he has good news of great joy. And he tells them of a child who has been born. And as he tells them where to find this child, suddenly the sky is filled with other angels and together they sing and proclaim, peace has come. But what is peace? The ancient Hebrew scriptures use the term shalom. And shalom is more than what we usually think of when we think of peace. Shalom is used by Isaiah as he tells us that the Prince of Peace will be coming, literally the Prince of Shalom. Shalom means wholeness or completeness. Shalom in the Old Testament carries with it the connotation of fulfillment. We understand this term and, and use this term when we say that someone will rest in peace. And by that, we don't mean that they're going to rest in calmness, but rather that they rest having completed the work that God has set out before them. Having come to the end of their days and done the thing that they were called to do, now they can rest in peace. Peace also carries with it this idea of well-being, this idea that as peaceful people, we are free from anxiety, free from worry. We talk about having a peace within, a settled or calmness. Shalom or peace also means at times harmony with one another. We talk about being at peace with one another, a lack of strife or discord or conflict, the idea that we get along, that we actually like one another, that there is no animosity between us. And then there is the most important understanding of peace, and that is the full realization of God's favor. And that is a big concept, but it, in essence, is being at peace with God, that we are living in accordance with his will, with his wishes, and as a result, we receive his blessings. To these ideas of shalom, the New Testament writers will add to the concept of peace, the idea that peace itself is a virtue or a character trait. Paul will talk about peace as a fruit of the Spirit, a gift that the Spirit gives to us. So whereas the Old Testament talks about peace as a state of relationship, a state of being in relationship with each other and with God, the New Testament will add to it a character trait or a way of being as a person.
So what do the angels mean as they proclaim that peace has come to earth? Well, in the most immediate sense, they mean that the Prince of Peace has come, and the Prince of Peace is the one who embodies peace truly and fully. He is the one who responds to the call from God and fulfills his duty and his obligation and his purpose in this world. He's the one who has with him and within him a sense of peace and well-being. He is the one who offers peace to others, who lives in harmony with others, and he is, of course, the one who lives in the favor of his Father of God. There is, of course, a second sense in which peace has come. Not only is this child the one who will embody peace, but this is the one by whom and through whom we shall find peace. That through his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and sending of his spirit, we will be granted and given peace. We will be given the opportunity to do as he does, to live as he lives. We now have access to the peace that for thousands of years the people had been promised, but they have not found. The law pointed us to peace, but it could never enable us to get there. The Prince of Peace, however, gives us the Spirit who grants us peace. By his scars and through his power, we no longer need to be at odds with God. We no longer need to be at odds with one another. We no longer need to live meaningless, empty, vapor-like lives. For those of us who choose to accept it, the door is open for a new way of life and being in the world. For the first time, as the angels sing in the sky, as this baby boy lays in a manger in a small town in the middle of nowhere, there is the possibility of things being right. For the first time, there is the possibility of peace. As we sit here in the fourth week of Advent, days away from celebrating the birth of this child, Messiah, how are you? John Wesley has this question that he would ask as he began his meetings. He would ask everyone in the room, how is it with your soul? Today I ask this of you, how is it with your soul? Are you anxious? Are you worried? Are you restless? Are you upset because you're at odds with someone else? Have they wronged you or upset you? Perhaps you're the one who's in the wrong. Do you feel like it's all meaningless? Do you feel like you aren't doing the thing that you're called to do, that you aren't standing in the will of God, you aren't doing the things that matter to God and to the kingdom. Most fundamentally and importantly, how is your relationship with God? Do you even have one? In five days, we will wake up and celebrate the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. We will celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace, the one who is peace, who embodies peace, and also the one who gives peace. Now, I don't know actually how it is with your soul. If you're wanting to talk about that or willing to talk about that, that's part of what I'm here for, and I encourage you to get a hold of me. But my guess is, for most of us, it could be better. More often than not, we either ignore that reality or we seek to find ways of self-improvement. We try to hack our ways into being right or settled. In fact, we have entire industries that have been created to tell us, give us steps and programs by which we can find our way to peace. But this is Christmas. Now more than ever, we must realize that we're not going to work our way into peace. We're not going to find a set of rules or a program that will teach us how to become peaceful. If the set of rules that God himself gave to us won't get us there, why do we think that the latest guru or self-help fad will? This is Christmas, and the meaning of Christmas is that peace has come. Peace is a child. Peace is a gift. Peace is not to be acted into or found. Peace is to be received. 
So on this fourth and final Sunday of Advent, may you set aside your striving, your efforts, your work at creating peace. May you realize that it has all already been done for you. May you recognize that it is a gift and may you receive it. And may it be well with your soul. <laughs>